You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and today I sit down with self-defense expert Tim Larkin. Tim is the creator and owner of a program called TFT, which stands for Target Focused Training, which we describe a little bit further in this call. Um, But he's also the author of several self-defense books, the latest of which is called When Violence is the Answer. And I realize that's a fairly controversial topic given today's social climate, but um, I actually think it's the perfect topic and the perfect message for those who do feel marginalized or victimized by potential aggression, Um, especially women who uh, often think of violence and aggression in a very, very different way than men do. I've shared this on other podcasts episodes, but I was at a conference one time when the um, the speaker asked, you know, the men, when did you feel threatened in your life? When have you, f- I'm sorry, when have you felt that your life has been threatened? Have you ever felt that? And, you know, a good amount of men raised their hands. And he said, all right, well, of the, of the men in the room, how many of you have felt this way in the last um, 90 days, in the last 30 days, in the last week? You know, by the time we got down to the last 30 days last week, hardly any guys were raising their hands. Conversely, when he asked the women, how many of you have felt that your life has been threatened? 100% of the hands went up. Well, what about with the last five years? 100% of the hands. What about within the last three years, last one year, last 90 days? Still almost 100% of the hands were still up. Um, What about in the last 30 days? I would say over 50% of the women's hands were still up. Women deal with a a reality that men just don't. Um, And whether that's an actual reality or perceived reality is sort of besides the point. If that is you. If you do feel like, um, you know, you feel that you are the potential victim of aggression or violence, uh, or perhaps you already have been, this is the type of information that can literally make or break you in terms of life and death situations. Um, Tim gives a few examples of his clients that have actually dealt with that. So it's really, really important information. I do want to make sure that there's the proper context for this. This is not about glorifying violence. This is about using violence as a last resort. When you are when somebody's attacking you um, and you feel that your life is potentially uh, on the line to where you'd actually be, um, uh, what's what I'm looking for, where you'd actually be justified in using a weapon if you had one, right? So Tim teaches you how to use your body and, and um, defend yourself in a way that can be weaponized. So again, uh, I do want to emphasize the um, caution in listening to this content and obviously applying its proper context. Um, we iter- reiterate this at the end of the call. I don't think that this is good material for young men um, because young men often are still learning to adapt their uh, their aggression and, and their you know hormonal changes um, unless they're very very mature unless they have proper uh, supervision. So um, Tim gets into that a little bit more in the call as well. But with that, I'm going to leave it at that. Hopefully we can have some level of maturity and and presence of mind when you listen to this content. Um, It's really, really good stuff. Tim is the man to talk to when it comes down to personal self-defense. So with that, let's dive into the call. I would love to hear what you think, by the way. Uh, Any feedback that you have, please let me know on the website, pkexperience.com. But here we are with Tim Larkin. All right, very good. I'm here with Tim Larkin. Tim, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom today. I'm very, very excited to talk to you. Um, so first and foremost, thanks for, for joining the call. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so you are, for, for those that don't know who you are, let's just give them a quick brief background about who you are and what you do and your, a little bit of your philosophy. 
Yeah, um, uh, basically my story is uh, I was a SEAL candidate in 1987. Um, I was a couple of weeks away from training, uh, from going to uh, SEAL Team 4 at the time. And I had one more dive. I had this, you know, kind of a, a BS dive we had to do. And I was congested, didn't feel, you know, didn't feel 100% that day, but I wanted to do the dive because I didn't want to have to make it up on the weekend. So I forced myself to do it. We're tying haversacks of explosives underneath the water. Now, at this point in my life, I had trained really since I was 13 years old to become a SEAL. I knew everything about it. My dad's in the Navy. We lived literally across the street from the, from the training command. Um, I, I knew everything there was to know. I've been taking cold showers since I was 13. So bigger, faster, stronger, that was my whole world was that. And I was it. And I was arrogant about it. And, um, you know, I was, I was headed to be the number one guy in your class, which is called the Anchorman. And uh, that allowed you to choose wherever you wanted to go. And that's where I was headed towards. And back then, if anybody's watching, it's funny, because last couple of years, I haven't had this ability. But if anybody's been watching Narcos on Netflix, um, the reason I wanted to go to SEAL Team 4 was because they had all the counter-narcotics work during that. You know, they were doing Operation Snowcap and stuff like that. It was the place to be. Mm. So I, I was really full of it. So I just, I just figured, hey, I'm just going to crank through this dive. I don't need to be completely 100% healthy. Down there, tying the explosives on, you know, you have waves on top of the water, waves below the water. Wave hits me right in the ear, blows my eardrum. Um, water goes shooting up into me. And my whole body betrays me. I have no idea which way is up. I go into vertigo. Um, and the reason I'm telling the story is because it really is the crux of what the future brought for me as far as self-protection and self-defense. Mm -hmm. I lived in a world of bigger, faster, stronger. I lived in a world of combat sports, martial arts, um, and also obviously going to SEAL teams, you know, you know, tough, 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 and all that stuff. Um, it was the first time I had ever experienced a true injury, meaning I'd been, you know, cut, I'd been, uh, you know, hit, bruised, cracked ribs, stuff like that. But, you know, I could gut through all of that. This was something that I had my body. It didn't matter what I wanted to do. I had no control over it. It was true injury to the human body and it shook my whole world. Not only did it immediately end my career before it even started as a SEAL team, uh, you know, member, but it also just showed me that relying on physical strength alone, uh, you have to respect the fact that, you know, if we look at our bodies, we're all built the same. We have different sizes, but we still have all of these areas of the human body that are susceptible to injury. Mm -hmm. And it was like kind of the, the, the nexus of it. I then, um, they kept me in the career. They, they kept me in uh, the SEAL teams at the time. I wasn't a SEAL, but they made me a uh, Naval Special Warfare Intelligence Officer. I worked directly for the admin that controlled all the SEAL teams. It was a super senior position. I had no business being there, but we were in an expansion phase. They needed bodies, and you know I was broken because I couldn't dive, but they knew I knew the community, so they kept me in. So I got to work, you know, when we're talking about the Narcos thing, I actually got to work on a lot of those projects from the intelligence side and Special Warfare. It was really, really interesting. But the thing that's seminal to me was uh, we, at that time, you know, the wall was coming down. You know, the Berlin Wall was coming down. Our whole mission in the military was changing from focusing on the Soviets to now. We had guys predicting. They, they actually predicted what's been going on. They predicted Bosnia, Herzegovina. They, they predicted what was going on in Africa with Hootsies and Tootsies. They, they understood that once the Soviets dissipated from there, that everybody's going to go back to kind of tribalism, fighting. And they realized the way the U.S. military, especially special operations, 
they really hadn't planned for a lot of you know door to door house kicking on on the level that you see now. Now it's very now basic troops, Marines, Army uh, are trained in stuff that really only special operations guys were trained in in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things they looked at was hand to hand combat. And these, you know, I was at a command with literally the legends of the SEAL teams. You know, the Admiral brought in the best of the best to start revamping the SEAL teams because we also, in addition to everything changing, the military came together under the Special Operations Command. So all of a sudden, this command came together where we had to integrate with all the other, you know, groups. And it was universal through there that everybody was looking at the idea of, oh, we got to start putting hands on people again. Now... The conditions they were looking for, I, they brought me in. Here I am, this, this kid with no experience whatsoever. You know, they liked me. They liked the work I did for intelligence, you know, and, and, and work I put in. But no combat experience. No, I, I'd never been to a team, never, never did anything. I mean, I felt, you know, if your readers, if your listeners can understand, I, I, I felt going from the highest point that you could be as a kid you know, where you got to select the SEAL team that you want to do. That's how good you did training to literally a pariah to where you just feel like, you know, it was a real hard thing for me mentally to overcome at that time because I felt a lot of guys who didn't deserve it, they just had better ears than me, were able to go on and, and, and train. So what was interesting, though, is, you know, things work out differently. That's the other thing that a lot of listeners have to understand. Um, it's, it's funny to look back. The best thing that ever could have happened to me was that injury. Um, because it opened up the world that I never would have been exposed to. I mean, I got to work at the highest levels of all special operations commands, and I got involved in things that I never did. And one of the things I got involved in was they put a pilot course together to start looking at hand-to-hand combat again. And we literally, they liked me because I had a martial arts background. You know, being a Navy kid, um, I was always taking martial arts everywhere I went. And they liked me, you know, and I, and I was, I was kind of like a convenient meat puppet for these guys to knock around and, and um, you know, here I am dealing with these guys who just in Vietnam were just doing these amazing missions and then, you know, everything in between all the black ops. And so I, I learned a tremendous amount from these guys, but they started flying in martial artists and combat sport people from all over the world. And we, we trained with some amazing guys back then. Um, but nothing was really good. You know, the thing we were looking for, we were looking for something that worked synergistically with weapons, you know, and the equipment that you carried and all, all the, you know, what an operator, you know, is dealing with. And, and we put conditions in that the operator that we're talking about has been in country at least 60 days. Um, you know, sleep patterns are taken off. Your, your regular conditioning is all off. You're uh, slightly dehydrated for sure. If not even, you know, mildly dehydrated. And so the only thing you can really, you know, rely on is your body weight. And, we saw, like I said, these amazing athletes and these amazing martial artists, but none of them could really integrate with weapons. So I get a call, you know, in the middle of this, you know, we're probably about six months into looking at all these different martial arts and training. And it was amazing. It was awesome, you know, to train with these guys and to, uh, to train with the SEALs that I got to train with and just to do all these various martial arts. I mean, we looked at everything, the Filipino martial arts, we looked at the Korean martial arts, we looked at Gracie Jiu-Jitsu had just started coming around, so we were kind of looking at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but didn't really take off, you know, wouldn't really take off for another couple of years. Um, and, you know, it was great, but I get a call out of the blue one day from a buddy of mine at DEA. You know, one of the things that was great about the command I was at is I get to work with everybody, you know? And so I had a buddy who was a DEA agent, 
and he's a, he's a really funny kid. And he calls me up, and they thought they thought it was ridiculous back then. It's hard for everybody to understand that now with the UFC and everything being so prevalent, you would think hand to hand combat would be you know a, a big thing, and it wasn't. It was actually derided. It was looked at as if you had to get down to hand to hand combat, um, then you made a horrible mistake. You know, yeah, right? Wow. Yeah, and, and that you you screwed up that that you did that. Huh. What we were able to do was this guy calls me up and says, hey, listen, are you guys still doing that punchy, kicky stuff? And we're, I go, yeah, you know, called him a name and said, yeah, we are. He goes, well, listen, he goes, we actually did some training with this guy. He goes out in Pacific Beach. Now, you have to understand, we're flying people in from all over the world to, you know, train. And this guy is telling me I should check out a guy who's literally four blocks away from where my apartment is in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking... You know what? Well, he goes, hey, trust me. He goes, just go check it out. So I walked by the the little you know studio where this guy was. It was in a, like off of one of the main streets in, in uh, Pacific Beach, right next to a really nasty pub, and all this. And I looked in. It was like a 900 square foot studio, carpet like torn up carpet, uh, not no pads or anything like that. And there's nothing impressive about it. I was going to dismiss it, but then he had a trifold. uh, taped up against his door and I happened to read the trifold and it mentioned his combat service in Vietnam. He was in a company called, uh, he was in a a division called the 173rd Charlie company. And the 173rd was left way out in the jungle for extended period of time. These were the guys who were doing the tunnel rats and all that other, you know, stuff that you hear about, you know, Vietnam back then. Right. And uh, this guy was part of that. And so that's the only thing that got me to go back to a course, you know, I mean, to one of his classes, which was the next day. So the next evening I go into an early evening class there, I walk in and all I can say is it looked like a slow motion prison riot. You know, these guys were just sitting there, they were, they were striking real parts of the human body. One kid, I remember he came in, he hit a guy's side neck out the back of his neck out of nowhere comes a rubber knife and he just starts using the knife and but the kid's not reliant on the on the tool he's literally systematically going through the human body and i looked at it and, I, and it just harkened back to me that it looked like real violence you know it looked like things i had seen out in the street um i i wouldn't say i was necessarily a, you know a brawler but i'd seen a lot you know, coming up, my brother was a bouncer at one of the worst bars in San Diego, uh, all Mongols and Hell's Angels. And I'd seen, you know, real fights, knifings, I'd seen all that. This was the only training I ever saw that looked like a direct correlation. And what I learned was these guys were working on how to injure the human body. So if I could tell everybody, probably one of the biggest systemic changes you can start to make for your own self-protection is if you just flip the switch, instead of looking at another human, and noticing all the differences, which is something that often, you know, we all do. If we see a guy who's really big, intimidating looking, probably has the tats, has that look, you know, um, start making all the assumptions. We notice, oh my gosh, this guy's so much bigger than me. This guy's so much, you know, this, this, and this. If you learn to switch it to, oh, he has a throat like me. There are his knees. Here's all the same vulnerabilities that no matter what the package looks like, all of these you know, vulnerable areas exist. And this is something that evolved over many years of my training. You know, uh, I trained in the military for a long time with this guy, I trained um, as a private contractor all through the 90s. Uh, and I started training uh, 
you know, corporate executives right before and then all highly after 9-11. 9-11 kind of changed everything to where I went, not just military and law enforcement, but then I went first corporate um, executives that were internationally traveling places, a lot of oil companies, a lot of people that were putting pipelines in, things like that. People that were negotiating, um, you know, uh, kidnappings and things like that. We trained tons of those types. And then, of course, those people wanted their people, their, you know, loved ones trained. And that's how we made the switch to start training more civilians. And what I learned was that if you can train somebody to understand how to use justified lethal force, and that's a very politically correct way of saying being able to break the human body until the person's no longer a threat when justified, meaning the challenge is you can show a lot of really aggressive stuff, but if it's not backed up with a good decision-making you know, aspect, it's just a quick trip to prison uh, for you. You know, what, what the challenge is, is, okay, how can I take the stuff that was really designed for the military? You know, it's really only designed for imminent grievous bodily harm. When you, you know, I tell people what I train is the equivalent of if you're facing this threat and you had a firearm available to you, you would feel justified emptying the firearm into the threat. That's the same threshold that you would ever want to use violence on somebody else. And this all evolved from an accident, you know, that I had that I thought, you know, ended my life to giving me a whole new way of looking at the idea of bigger, faster, stronger, and the fallacies of bigger, faster, and stronger. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this is an individual self, right? We are all have the ability to protect ourselves. We don't all have the ability to compete in a combat sport, martial art, but we all can use violence to protect ourselves because it's a very different equation that you're training for. Uh, you said that so perfectly, and I and I want to just reiterate that because I think a lot of listeners um, feel uh, you know outside their comfort zone when it comes to violence. Obviously, the the title of your new book uh, being "When Violence Is the Answer." Um, actually, this this probably says it best. I was looking at some of the uh, reviews of the book on Amazon, and this one reviewer said started his five star review with saying, "I hate violence." He says, I do not like violence, but when 9-11 happened, I knew I did not want to be a passenger on one of the three planes that were flown into the public buildings with great loss of life. I wanted to be on the, one of the passengers on Flight 93 who fought back. They lost their lives, but not allow the airplane to be used to massacre thousands more innocent lives. Um, then he goes on to say, so uh, knowing that karate black belts are awesome fighters, thank you, Chuck Norris, I started working on black belt. As it came to, up to my black belt exam, I still realized that I didn't have any idea how to take down uh, a terrorist or a threat. I do want to just caveat that to say that the people that you know were were killed in those first two points obviously didn't know they were that they needed to fight back. But um, that to me is the is the threshold that you're talking about. This isn't um, you know the bar fight or trying to puff your chest and and you know, take somebody out and use violence in that manner. It really is in a life-threatening situation. I just wanted to reiterate that because I think some people do get lost on the fact that we're glorifying violence or something like that. And that, yeah. that just isn't the case. Well, that's why I love the subject because it's a huge challenge. I mean, I, I took a huge hit promotion-wise using violence in my title. I mean, I got kicked off of Google, Facebook, um, you know, it just happened to come, it had to come with, with 
you know, with the, with the current election, the current administration that we have and the back and forth between both sides, there's an overreaction now on anything uh, right now on social media that literally this, I got a letter back saying, well, this is just make somebody feel bad. Um, an email I went to send out that said the, the attack, the, uh, the attacker, uh, a victim turned attacker was the title. It got shut down by the ISP, you know, people that actually let you send the email out because, oh, no, 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 you can't do anything like that. It looks like you're, you're promoting violence. And it, there's just a, I understand there's a lot of people that are of the opinion that, uh, you know, if you, if you look at a subject or you study a subject, somehow you're going to bring it upon you. There's that whole karmic thing that, that people talk about all the time. And I understand, and, and, you know, I understand what they're saying by that, but I then would ask them, I said, well, do you have a, you know, fire extinguisher in your kitchen? Because most houses, you know, in the United States, you have to buy code, have a, have a fire extinguisher. And he goes, oh yeah, I have it. Do you know how to use it? Yeah, yeah, I, I know how to use it. I go, oh, okay, so you want fire to come into your life. You know, and it's just, and they, they go, well, well, no. I go, exactly, I said, but now you have the peace of mind to know if a fire starts, you've already thought about it, you already understand what equipment you're gonna use and you know how to deal with it. Same thing. The biggest fear that any human has is to be dominated by one or more other humans to do things against their will or to be physically assaulted, um, you know, threaten their family or anything like that. It's, it's a huge fear. It's this 800-pound gorilla. But we've been told as society that if we study the, the tool of violence, that somehow it makes us violent or it makes us criminal. And that unfortunate, um, it, it kind of started in the late 50s. Uh, this kind of thought process got really bad in the last 15 years to where you have situations now where it's, it's never okay. You know, they, they say it's never okay. People are literally hesitate to take action to protect their own lives because they're worried about legal consequences, which quite frankly, in the United States, you're pretty safe in the, under the parameters that we're talking about, meaning you're devoid of choice. Meaning if you have the ability to run, you would have run. If you had the ability to talk your way out of it, you would have done that. If you don't take action in facing grievous bodily harm, then you're almost participating in your own murder at that point, because you know it, it's coming regardless of what you're what you would like to happen. Training for that level, training. You know, when when I look at a client, my goal is you know they ask me, okay, what's the parameters of your training? Here's the parameters of the training. What what do we assume when I'm training a client? I assume that the threat they're going to face is going to Number one, have multiple attackers. Those attackers are going to be bigger, faster, and stronger. And those attackers are going to carry weapons. And that's your baseline because when you look at a combat sport or a martial art, and people misunderstand this all the time. They think somehow by me pointing this out about combat sports and martial arts, I'm somehow denigrating combat sports or martial arts. Not at all. Combat sports and martial arts are just are, are amazing. The athletes are amazing. I live in Vegas. I go to the UFC all the time. I have a lot of friends that are in the UFC. I have friends that are in the UFC organization. I'm, there's no bigger combat sport fan than me. Uh, but what, do, what makes combat sports work? You know, what makes a martial art or combat sport competition work? Well, number one, you have to outlaw injury to the human body. The last time that I looked at the UFC, it had 31 rules. 27 of those rules outlaw direct injury to the human body. And the reason being is it's the only way you can gamify violence because what you want when you put a contest together is you want to pit skill against skill. That's why they have weight classes. Mm -hmm. That's why they have a defined area 
That's why they agree upon the rules and they then have somebody within the ring to, you know, to enforce those rules. None of that's going to be available to you out there. And it takes away a lot of the edge that a combat sport practitioner would have, because of course they're, they're going against a threat that they know. They absolutely agree to what's going to be going on. They get prior training, you know, prior to that, they have time to train for that, prepare. They've got their teams. They get to eat what they want. They get to, you know, train the way they want, sleep the way they want. All those things are, are in there. They know when they're going to fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 and there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's amazing. I, I try to tell people, it, it, you know, if anybody saw the last, U, not the last UFC, but the UFC with Conor McGregor and uh, the Kazakhstan fighter, I always screw his name up. Uh, he's Khabib. a amazing fighter. Um, Khabib? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, and when they when that went crazy, look at the two fighters. Look how amazing both of those guys were, and he absolutely dominated Connor on that one and went back and forth. But those are two top competitors. Watch the watch the video again of when everybody pours into the ring. Every they're no more relevant than anybody else there. As a matter of fact, Connor got hit from behind. He was looking yeah. forward and he in there. And that's not denigrating them. It's to show that violence provides you opportunities. And I have many things, many uh, um, videos of professional fighters, you know, well-trained MMA people in a real-world environment with all the outliers, all the things we didn't talk about, multiple attackers, weapons, um, you know, bigger, faster, stronger, people coming in from all sides. And what you end up seeing oftentimes is you see people who are physically unimpressive, able to take out a highly trained combat athlete who is, say, focused on the one threat in front of him, like he always trains, and he doesn't really understand situational awareness on that. Now, it doesn't mean he's a bad person. But I also put it out to people this way. I, you know, if I have a seminar, I'll have about 50, 60 people in the, in the seminar, and I'll say, okay, if, there is a, if I brought in this amazing block of Italian marble, you know, eight feet tall and I told everybody and I brought out professional chiseling sets and art artistry, everything that you needed to be a sculptor. And I told everybody, okay, nobody leaves for lunch today until you guys create Michelangelo's David for me. Perfectly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Hardly either. There'd be nobody that could probably even get even close to starting at that point to find that person that could do that. You have to go to a huge group of the population highly, highly, you know, they have to be highly, highly skilled, have a great eye, have all the artistic abilities. That I equate to a combat sport athlete. The people that we get to see that compete are at that level. They've gone through those thousands of people that train to get that elite status to where you see the best of the best. Very few are ever going to reach that level. But if I came into that same group of 60 people and I brought in a bunch of sledgehammers and I said, hey, Nobody gets to have lunch today until this seven-pound block of marble is a pile of rubble. Believe me, they get the job done. Anybody can do it. Anybody, can, as long as they can swing a hammer, they're going to start. They're going to start reducing that to rubble. That's the skill set of destruction. It's a. It's accessible to everybody. It's not elegant, and it works amazingly well. Well, there's a, there's a baseline um, primal psycho psychology of survival that comes out regardless of you, whether you have any training or not. If somebody's trying to choke you, yeah. there's going to be something in you that's going to, your body's going to eventually take over and say, uh, you know, fight or flight is going to kick in. 
but to apply the intentionality of what you teach uh, it gives uh, somebody a literal fighting chance against a threat that potentially is much bigger or stronger or you know has a weapon or something like that yeah, and what, what people have need to think about is the when, when we train people for these events, we're not training. Like if we put the you know whoever threat, whatever threat you're thinking about, whatever kind of individual you're thinking about, if we put the both of you in a ring, and one guy's far more aggressive and far more you know willing to use violence or far more willing to train in that type of situation where everybody knows what's going on, we probably know how that would end up. You know, there's a really good chance that you know that you're going to get you know, taken out at that point. That's not what I train people for because when you look at the incidences and the people that have survived and be able to fight back, what happens is the predator doesn't see them as a threat. Therefore, the predator will bring a body part, a vulnerable body part of theirs into your range at that point. I just teach people how to exploit that because once you injure them in these areas, again, what happened to me when I was below the water, I couldn't get my body to do anything. I barely got, the only way I got up was I hit a tow rope of one of the IBSs above us, one of the inflatable boats that were above us. And I grabbed that and I pulled myself up. I thought I was pulling myself 45 degrees down towards the bottom. I just happened to hit, they said when my head hit, my head was flapping uncontrollably, bleeding you know, out of my ears. They pulled me on and you know, that was the end of me as far as diving. But what I try to tell you is that's what happens to injury the human body. Watch, you know, especially if people want to see the systemic change in injury the human body is watch sports injury. That's where we get a lot of really good data. All the data that I use for injury the human body comes from the sports medicine world. The reason we look at sports medicine is because it's humans colliding with humans, humans colliding with the planet. So what you'll see is people say, well, yeah, but these are big, strong athletes. I go, Exactly. So here's somebody who's conditioned themselves to this amazing level. And you see them, and all they care about, if it's a football player, all, and he's carrying a running back, all he cares about is blasting through that line. He's completely focused on that. I just uh, got a video of a, of a kid uh, a, a kid from Dallas, and uh, the, you know, from the Cowboys. And he's going through, and he's barreling through and gets his ankle broken. Hmm. When you see the systemic change in his being, when you see the ankle break, all of a sudden, you know, structure of his body doesn't work anymore. He goes down, he drops the ball. He's completely focused on one thing, one thing only, even though his competitive streak is so strong that all he wanted to do, if he could have gutted his way out of it, he would have, if anything, but he couldn't. His body betrayed his brain. The trauma was too great, and his body goes into an automatic reaction to deal with the trauma uh, that, you know, is too much for the body. That's what we teach you to do. So. When you do this to people, successfully injure them, they do all the work, meaning they react to the strike. You just have to go to the one vulnerable area, put everything you have into it, but then their body, say they weigh 280 pounds, all of a sudden all 280 pounds is being mobilized to go away from that trauma and get it in there. So you look superhuman when you injure people. I mean, a much smaller person. Where you see this, it's just, at, you know, and then this is the other controversy that I have. You know, I've done a lot of studying of the prison system and prison gangs and in 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 especially how they use violence as currency to run their, their prisons and the way they look at it. And they're very accomplished. I've seen footage of a 5556 five, Latino Sereno gang member jump up and take out a 6'6 Aryan brother 
you know, just vicious, you know, the, the, way, the way it went down. But the full confidence, when you see this guy jump up and go, he is fully focused on where he's going. He's got all maybe 160 pounds in motion up against a guy who had to weigh about 260 and not fat. Just went right up, caught him unawares and went right into him right away with an improvised shank and, and took him out. Because he understood where on the human body to go, he didn't see bigger, faster, stronger. He saw opportunity and he was completely directed and focused. Now, studying the prisons and studying prison gangs, people often say, oh, you're promoting them or you're glorifying them. No, what I'm trying to do is, to, you know, there's good information from, probably the best information on how to use the tool of violence comes from the worst parts of society. Why? Because they have to survive that way. And there's no rules. There's no rules, there's no, and there's no authority. In the prisons, you'd think, oh, you can go to prison authorities. No way. You are, especially these big federal pens that are, that are run. I was just at Kern State, and I was talking to, I was going in a program there at, at Kern State, one of the supermaxes. It's one of the birthplaces of the Mexican mafia. Um, it was amazing for these guys to show me just what they got in, in a, you know, in a last week, you know, what kind of improvised weapons and how they look at it. But these guys are very specific with violence. They look at the human anatomy. They've been ordered to study human anatomy to know where to get the quickest results because if they have to use violence, they can't fail. If the Aryan Brotherhood gets contracted to do, a, say, a, a murder uh, for another, for, for maybe, you know, a mafia group outside or something like that, their, their currency, their ability to run drugs and do all this stuff is from the successful use of the tool of violence. And they had some situations where they attacked a guy it was ineffective. He would, they were able to, he, this guy was able to survive the attack when the, by the time the, the corrections officers got there and they, they got him off in the solitary and they'll never have another shot at this guy. So they, after that, they got very strict about coming down saying, you will study anatomy. Here's what you're going to look at. Here's how, you know, the, you know, killing is our, our cachet and you have to be really good at it. What can, we can learn from it? We can learn where you get the best results. You know, just objectively, there's no, there's no questioning this. It's, it's parts of the human body. When I can bring that and then I can apply the filter that you and I just talked about on when, when would it ever be appropriate for us to do something like that? You know, like people will say things, well, why would I ever, you know, why would I ever have to take somebody's eye out? Why would I ever have to learn something like that? When would it be crazy? And I always give them this test. I say, well, we just got to test the threshold, you know? And the threshold I always tell people is, okay, so I was, I was at the Walmart waiting patiently for this guy to pull out so I get the parking space. This other guy zooms in, steals my parking space. I, I'm just enraged. I get out of my car, I run over to him. He gets out of his car, starts yelling to me. I knock him up against the car, grab the back of his head, and I gouge his eye out. Your Honor. And then I'll say, okay, you um, – you're at the mall, guy comes by and, you know, he's talking to your wife and he just tells her she's a fat cow. And so she knees him in the groin, throws him down on the ground, she gouges his eye out. Your Honor. Then I say, I was at my kid's school the shooter came through while I'm picking up the kids. He got his first magazine off. I saw him drop down to do a reload. I knew there was nothing we could do. 
I ran him down, knocked him to the ground, and I gouged his eye out. So all of a sudden, people sit there and go, oh, okay, I get it. The first two are absolutely outrageous. You sit there and you go, way overreaction, quick, quick, you know, way to get yourself in legal trouble. Um, the third one meets the threshold. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it doesn't seem so crazy. All of a sudden, with that particular description, people are saying, okay, okay wait a minute. Exactly, how do I do that? Where do I put my thumb? What do I do? You have to make sure you explain this in the right things. I see people in my world, which drives me crazy. I hate it when people call it reality self-defense because I don't think there's really anybody that's teaching reality in reality self-defense. They, I will see scenario after scenario where they're having, so here I am sitting at the bar and this guy comes up behind me and X, Y. They're literally setting up scenarios that are going to get you into prison or get you in legal trouble or coming in. That's not the time. You have to really train clients to understand everything that's avoidable and then that narrow window when you'd ever have to use a tool of violence. And what's great about that is, I can't tell you, Peter, how many behavioral changes have happened to people when they come through the training. I had a guy who was just a huge dude from Houston. It's just a big, you know, literally a Texas rancher, oil family, um, a nice guy, you know, meaning a very personable guy. Uh, he comes through the first day of training and the next morning he makes sure he's there as, I, as I'm coming in. He's, he goes, hey, can I just tell you something? And I mean, yeah, you know, I know what he's going to say to me. And he goes, I just want to let you know. He goes, I got to thank you. He goes, I called my wife last night. And I told her, honey, you no longer have to worry about me. Because he was a guy that he'd go out to like honky tonks and stuff like that. And he wouldn't go looking for a fight, but if he, the slightest provocation, he'd get into one right away. And he said, I realize I've been risking my life nonstop for the last 10 years doing so, willingly participating in things like that. I'm so damn lucky that I didn't run into somebody that actually knew how to use a tool of violence. And I'm so damn lucky that inadvertently I didn't injure somebody or kill them um, because of something stupid. Mm-hmm. And, and what's interesting is, is when somebody's really well-trained at that level of justified lethal force with the conditions that we're talking about, your, your reaction to things that normally would cause you to maybe get angry or, or, or respond in kind and maybe up the ante a little bit and the antisocial aggression, people just start dismissing. Some of the best responses I get from people is behavioral changes that they've done because they realize, I don't even want to put myself in a position where this could be a, uh, something because what people don't understand is once you cross the physical plane on somebody, once you actually put your hands on somebody and do an injury, you are, you have no control over what that outcome is going to be. Meaning, I look at a guy, he looks like Schwarzenegger in his prime. He's being a real jerk. I don't really, you know, I'm sitting there going, okay, Larkin showed me all these different areas of the human body. I go after her. I just want to shut this guy up. What could I do? Oh, I know. I'll strike him in the solar plexus. You know, anybody that's been hit in the middle of the torso here in the solar plexus, little group of nerves that seizes up your lungs, makes it really hard for you to breathe. If you're a kid, you got hit in the stomach or you fell as a little kid. I used to see little kids running around the yard. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I mean, they can exhale, but it's really hard to inhale. We've probably all experienced that. So this guy thinks, hey, I'll just I'll slam him in the solar plexus and that'll shut him up. So he slams him in the solar plexus. Everybody at the bar is happy because the loudmouth just got shut up. This guy's looking like a hero. And then he looks over at the guy 
and all of a sudden the guy's turning purple and he's clutching his chest because what he didn't know is he has a genetically bad heart and he's just causing arrhythmia and this guy's going to die. So now he's facing manslaughter at best, mm-hmm. you know, in a situation like that. Over what? And what I always try to tell people is I say, you have to start living your life through the three-day filter, you know, the three-day test that I call it. And that means if three days from now you find yourself sitting in a jail cell awaiting sentencing or awaiting, you know, your, your trial, or your family's put you six feet under and you're, you know, no longer with us. Would you look at either one of those situations over the incident and tell yourself, yep, I was devoid of choice. I had to do what I had to do. Very very few incidents reach that threshold. Mm -hmm. And it's tough, but it's amazing when I see people, when they really understood how to use the tool of violence. I think the thing that that is so hard for people to, to understand is not that it's scary to learn it. I think they're scared that they're already pretty damn good at it. Once it's pointed out that we as humans, because we are the alpha predators, we are the, the number one. It's not because we're bigger, faster, and stronger. If we had to be bigger, faster, and stronger, we wouldn't be here. You know, and I tell people, you know, I used to joke, I say, hey, who wants to jump in a cage with a 45 pound mountain lion that hasn't eaten in three days? Mm-hmm. You know, any volunteers, you know, and, and of course nobody wants to do it. And that's a much smaller animal, it's only 45 pounds. But an animal has reflexes and abilities that, that we just don't have. But what makes us dangerous is, you know, we are built like predators. We have hands. We can create tools. We work in packs. And, and we're really, you know, we're really very good at that. And so we overcome that. The same way we should look at anything of dealing anybody, any sort of physical threat. We should train in the same way that we use any sort of a tool, a weapon, a club, or, or a knife. We just basically... I like your, I like every body tool that you have to become a slow moving bullet for you to get to affect an injury in the, in the, in the uh, area that you're going for. Whereas if a bullet ripped into that area, yeah, the trauma would be much higher, much higher spike for the most part, but you can still get the same reaction that we're talking about. You know, I get shot, if I get hit in the solar plexus versus shot in the solar plexus, one's just going to have a hell of a lot more trauma. But for me, it's the same reaction. The brain's out of the equation. I have the ability to put another injury on him and do that. And what's cool is it's not gender specific. You know, the one thing that drives me crazy is women are treated almost like second class citizens. A lot of times when you teach self-protection or self-defense, you know, like, Oh honey, you know, you can't really handle this stuff. So we're going to teach you this, this, and this, which is crazy. Women have far more of a chance to experience real violence than men for the most part. Uh, sexual assault at an ever higher level. And women are highly capable when they don't have to compete with bigger, faster, stronger. Women are very good at learning technique and getting right into it, um, you know, right away. So we train women the exact same way we train men. Uh, I was going to say, your, your methodologies and your philosophy and ultimately the outcome is really put into context when you see a class full of 110-pound women learning this, especially those who have dealt with being violated or scary situations, got caught in a back alley or walking out to your car, nobody else was around, all of a sudden there's a shadowy figure. Like when you put it into that context, for those that have an emotional negative reaction to violence, think of that context. All of a sudden it shifts into like, oh no, we want violence. We, I want that 
I have a hundred pound daughter. I want her to understand. And I've actually taught her some of the stuff that you've taught me um, for those specific situations. And you just don't know. So uh, that to me, honestly, I think that's part of your legacy. In fact, your uh, one of your other books, Survive the Unthinkable, A Total Guide to Women's Self-Protection um, is the precise answer for the Me Too movement, for this type of culture that, you know, we look at the president, we look at some of the, the aggressive language in the society, you know, the, the tension in society. This is the right response in a mature fashion. Like that, th yeah. there needs to be a certain level of maturity that is brought along with what you're saying. And I love that you spend so much time helping people put this in the proper context that, Hey, if you use this in a wrong way, you might be sitting in jail for a long time. Like this is not, you know, puffing your chest. Oh. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, people ask me also, hey, does this work in a bar fight? Or it works great in a bar fight. Works fantastic. I mean, it's it's you know, injury to the human body works. There's no doubt about it. Use it when it's not warranted. You know, it's it, it's gonna only get you. You may get away with it. You may be lucky. Like that. One of the things that shocks a lot of people is, I'll show two videos back to back. First video, um, I show this epic street fight it's just a epic the two big guys in russia just beating each other senseless you know on the whole time and it goes on and on for about five minutes one guy ends up on the ground he's all bloody and everything but he gets up and they kind of like you know drive him away so they look at that and people are like oh my gosh then i show the second video this comes from a closed circuit tv at a bar i think it was in arkansas um two guys talking one guy kind of you know, getting each other's face all of a sudden other guy hits one guy boom he hits the ground that's it. Cracked his head on the concrete. He's bleeding out on it. One punch. And so I go, you're, you're, you're playing Russian roulette every time you cross the physical plane. If it doesn't warrant that type of result where a guy's bleeding out on the concrete, it probably it was never worth doing at that point, you know, mm -hmm. over, over that. And, and like I said, that changes the, the behavioral status. And then on the women's self-protection, what's really strange with the Me Too movement in some ways is – Women are getting vilified when um, they say, hey, you should learn self-protection. Nia Sanchez, who was a Miss America, I think 2016, got hammered when she was being questioned uh, during one part of the competition. And she said, yeah, I really think, you know, I'm a black belt in Taekwondo and I really think it's important that women learn to defend themselves. The outrage on the other side was, no, women shouldn't learn to defend themselves. Men should not hurt women, you know, and... I get it. In a perfect world, they're absolutely right. You yeah, know? I agree. But, but I sit there and say, you know, also, I should live in a world where I don't have to lock my house at night, that I don't have to, you know, lock my car up, that I don't have to live in a gated community because we live in a gated community. Why would I need a gated community? Um, we shouldn't have to. Nobody should, you know, come into our house or anything like that. What I try to tell people, and it's really hard, especially right now, because things are so highly charged on social media. And, you know, the, ever since the election, the last two years, it's just been really vitriolic with everybody. But what I try to tell people is we need to live in the world that we live in and recognize the world for what it is rather than the world we want it to be. That doesn't mean we can't work to improve things, but we have to sit there. Like, I'll have women tell me, I should be able to run with my, um, with my power beats on at 1030 at night and be unmolested. And I go, absolutely, you should. But unfortunately, it's the statistics show that you're, you know, your profiling is a much more likely victim, you know, for something like that. You're just making it that much easier for the predators. 
And so that's what people do. When people start weighing the consequences and when they really, you know, one thing in the training is you have to physically do this. We're mimicking injury. It's a cooperative effort, but you're learning injury to the human body. You're, you're taking a hard part of you and you're putting it in a very vulnerable part of your partner and you're learning how to do that. And it's this cooperative effort because you can't, you can't go full speed in these areas. You're going to break something on it. You're, you're uh, irrespective. But what happens is people start to feel just a little bit of pressure in these areas and they get it. And that's what gives them the confidence. And then you have people, you know, like you said, you have, I, it's what well, the strangest thing about doing this in the last, you know, 30 years is the most unlikely candidates in my training have had to use this information. And it, I can't, tell you how crazy that is um you, you know it's never anybody i anticipate and that's why every class i tell everybody i go i don't know who you are but there's somebody in here statistically that's going to have to use this information therefore i need everybody to completely focus on the subject this weekend there's no you know, joker joking around i mean we have a good time off off mat but when you're doing the work you're doing the work and um you know that's that's probably the the the, the biggest thing is just people understanding how to injure the human body, unless you're a sociopath, unless there's something completely wrong with you, which you wouldn't seek out my training if you're a sociopath anyways. You just look at it and go, oh yeah, that works. Um, it, you know, the, the, the biggest thing that changes in people is once they understand how to actually do it, and the fact that, hey, you don't have to be superhuman to put injury on the human body, they usually do huge, as I told you before, behavioral changes. They really take a hard look at their life and say, okay, what am I doing this, even bringing the chance that violence might enter my life? What can I do to minimize that? And, and that's the coolest thing is, you know, unfortunately, especially, you know, in my early years of training, 70% of the people that would come to me came to me after the fact, after violence had already entered their life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I can get to that other 30% that's either proactive or they haven't really thought about it, but they're hearing me speak, you know, maybe people in your audience. Mm -hmm. If I can reach somebody like that, if they just read the book, I've had so many people that have read the book that's literally changed their, the way they've looked at things. And I've got amazing feedback from people because yes, would I like everybody to train in the methodologies and the principles that I train? Yes. But you can actually read the book and, and do a ton of mental changing and the way you look at the subject that alone uh, would really help you navigate the world in a much more um, safe manner to minimize violence coming into your life without even training, just understanding the concepts would help. You. Ab absolutely. I, I had the pleasure of training with you for a little bit out in Maui a couple of years ago. And one of the biggest takeaways for me was as we were sort of working through in our own minds, how do I take on, what, what if there was a guy that's 240 pounds? How am I going to take that on? And one of your trainers, uh, Bruce said to me, he said, it's not you against 120, uh, 220 pound or 240 pound guy. It's you against this eyeball. And he kind of mimics holding an eyeball and puts it down on the table. He's like, could you squash that eyeball? I'm like, well, yeah, I could do that. Just, but that psychological shift in me goes, oh yeah, if you gouge somebody's eyes, they're not thinking about, it's not, it's a game changer because they're not thinking it's not, you know, brawn against brawn. It's, it's just pure injury and they have to protect. So it really opened my mind to the psychology behind what you're talking about, which really does change the nature of, of the whole thing. And, and it made me understand this is how you actually apply this. The other thing that I wanted to say really quick for those that are listening, you mentioned it, but I wanted to uh, spell it out a little bit more that the, the um, 
program is called TFT, Target Focused Training, where you're literally zeroing, zeroing in on a, what, like a, why don't you describe it? What? Yeah, we like, we like to say, we like to teach you to train one, you know, put one square inch of you on a vulnerable square inch of them. And that's really it. So there's approximately, it's going to sound overwhelming to people, but it really isn't that big of a deal. There's really over 130 areas in the human body that you put trauma into where you'll get a result that we're talking about. You're really talking about when you injure somebody, you want to either injure a sensory system of the human body or you want to break structure on the human body. That's the, those are the two areas. And what do I mean by that? We give one example of, say, the, uh, you know, the solar plexus. We know if we strike the solar plexus, that the body seizes up and that's an, that's an internal sensory system. You're hitting the nervous system, the nervous system seizing your lungs and, you know, making it very difficult for you to breathe. Whereas if you say break an ankle, that's the structure of the ankle is being broken. And when we talk about breaking, you have to be very careful with medical definitions. Medical definitions are far more liberal about injury than what we consider injury. You know, when we're talking, we're talking about breaking the structure of the human body. So if you're, your ankle, that would be ripping and tearing all the connective tissue, holding the ankles together, the, the bones and the, you know, the, the tip and fib and, and the foot. And literally, it just doesn't work. It just flops around to where they can't support weight. Um, that's a broken ankle to us. Whereas, you know, other times, literally, people that have cracked one hairline bone on a foot um, or on the ankle bone, but they can still walk on it. Um, that would also be designated as a, you know, broken ankle, but you know, we're very clear on what, you know, how we define trauma in the human body. It's, it's hard sometimes to even have this conversation because, uh, as a former soccer player, I've rolled my ankles. I don't know how many times and just even the thought of it is cringe. Like there's an emotional connection to it. And I, I want to remind people that this is your world and this is just data. It's just yep. information. And what's, one of the things that kind of took me by surprise a little bit when I first started taking your training, we did a week long thing that very first day, you know, you're talking about <laughs> destruction of the human body and cracking this, right? like you just words now, and that this is your world and this is normalized for you. And it took me, it literally took me probably a good three to four days before, you know, we were watching videos almost every single day to where by that fourth or fifth day, it started to normalize with myself. And I was looking at it more analytically going, right. oh, yeah, this guy's coming in with a knife, but this guy knew how to hit him right in the solar plex. And look at how it just, you know, crippled his, the threat, essentially. Right. And this guy was able to, you know, so the, the flip side of that, you showed a video of a uh, closed circuit camera in a Vegas, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? casino yes. and uh, uh, a shooter came out fired a couple of shots everybody ducks a hero comes out of nowhere and I'm watching you know you're watching this and I see this guy and he's coming from behind the shooter yeah. and, I, and this and the guy is he's a big guy and I'm thinking mm -hmm. to myself oh what, this guy's a hero whatever he comes in he doesn't know what you teach he basically bear tackles the guy from behind which is a, a natural instinct for a lot of people to do right. and I'm thinking to myself read over the the perpetrator is able to somehow spin while he's falling and fires a shot off into this guy kills him yes and he's still free and he still has a weapon and he's still and it's like if if this guy only knew how to strike him where you taught us to strike in the back lower rib area thread yeah. over you know yeah. uh it's such valuable information it really truly is life and death i you know it's one it's why i wanted to have you on the program 
Yeah, the skill set of injury is is super useful because that, that's just it. You think by grabbing something and controlling on it, and there's a default to do that. It, it's interesting, and this isn't to put down jujitsu and stuff, but you know, I was I was curious. It really took over in the military. You know, a lot of guys start training jujitsu, and it's very rare. You know, usually what the 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 reasoning for training jujitsu with these guys, if they give me an example, they'll say, "Okay, we were over in the sandbox and we." came across these guys and we had to, we had to put everybody in, you know, take them as prisoner. And there was this one guy that was resisting, he was all over, you know, and I weighed 200 pounds and I couldn't control the guy. And I had two of my other buddy, you know, my other SEAL buddies and we're trying to hold him down and we can't hold him down. And then little chief so-and-so who's, you know, like, like, like a, like an enlisted chief who's, you know, their, their, their boss basically. He comes over, he spider monkeys up on the guy, chokes him out, and, and oh man, it's amazing. We all have to learn jujitsu. And yeah, it's great for prisoner handling, it's great for stuff like that. And it's good, it can be very good on the street if you're only dealing with a single threat because I've got tons of times where guys are literally tied up doing something and they're, they're completely wrapped, their, their arms are, are completely under control and all of a sudden they're getting stabbed and they're getting kicked by other guys that are coming that they didn't know existed. And it can go horribly wrong for them. And that poor individual that you're talking about, and he was, man, he barreled. He didn't even hesitate. I mean, here's wow. a guy that literally shot multiple people at this point. And this guy just comes out of nowhere and just, boom, barrels into it. And what happened, we understand was when he went to tackle him, it didn't prevent this guy from being able to twist and move in. And this guy was so committed that he twisted in and he literally shot him right up under the chin, killing the man. Um, when he came down and uh, it was really sad because if he had just put an injury on him, most likely that that would not have been the scenario, you know, um, you know, he may have got off one more shot or something like that, but, but that individual that came from behind would not have been shot. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's why I put things out. You know, you have to be very careful. I'm not criticizing the man. He's absolutely brave. It's just unfortunate. I have tons and tons of time where people take action, but they just don't have good information. You know, they, they're like, they, they're willing to do it. They're willing to put themselves, they're willing to completely, you know, sacrifice, um, you know, their safety to help others. And yet, if they just had this little bit of information of where to put that effort, uh, they would have got a much better result. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned before that you've taught classes before and you've had the most unlikeliest of people come back and say, hey, was this happened to me. Can you give a couple of those examples of, of some of your clients? Yeah. Yeah, one of, one of the ones that, that uh, you know, I talk about a lot is I had one female who came to us and she had a therapy dog when she showed up. She had been assaulted before. She had been attacked. And the course itself was really difficult for her. You know, it brought back, especially when we brought out tools like knives and stuff like that. And, you know, it was traumatic for her. She had to take many breaks, you know, during, during the, the course. Now, she had her concealed carry. You know, her husband had got her her concealed carry. Um, she was functioning. She wasn't. It wasn't like she was so traumatized that she couldn't, but the, the training itself, sometimes it can bring it out with people that had violence before. Sure. So at, literally in hearing this woman's story, she was one of those clients that I looked at and just said, God, you know, if anybody deserves a pass, it's this woman. So I, I hope this just becomes a interesting course for her the rest of her life, but she never needs the information. Well, I think it was about a year later, her husband calls up and tells us this incident, sends us a police report, She's at a Lowe's, I think it was a Lowe's or a Home Depot. She was getting stuff for her garden. She was getting some new flowers for her garden. And she had her therapy dog. Her therapy dog was a German Shepherd, but it wasn't an attack dog. It was, you know, basically a therapy dog. 
Um, she was loading it in the underground parking lot. She was loading it in by herself. You know, she, she was there with her dog. She puts, just as she puts her dog into his crate and locks the crate, she, she's about to grab the rest of the flowers when she hears from behind, do you need help? And she said every hair went up on her and her mind quickly, you know, just started registering. And she said to herself, it's happening again. And sure enough, the guy bear hugs her, brings her right up on, on the ground. She's able to have one arm free. She realizes immediately, she said, my first thought was, I can't get to my gun. So it's not my first tool that's available to me. But she realized she could move. She said, it was like you guys were in my ear. She used her elbow. She slammed it into the side of the neck. The side of the neck has two nerves, the phrenic nerve and the vagus nerve. And it also has a, uh, an artery and a vein. So you interrupt blood, blood flow and nerve flow when you strike the side of the neck. You've seen it probably multiple times, like in uh, mixed martial arts. And there's two reactions. If it's a vasal vagal response, a nerve response, it basically kind of puts a dimmer switch on the body. You'll see somebody kind of just like fade like this. Or it would be a uh, uh, concussion that you hit, you know, where the blood, where the, the vasal vagal is, you hit the side of the nerve. The nurse says, hey, we've got to reboot the body. You also interrupt blood flow because you sent a bunch of blood up into the brain at that point. And then it dumps all the blood out of the body. And that's when the person goes to the dimmer switch. Or if, it's, if, it, if there's enough force behind it and the brain slams you know, into the skull, then you're going to get yourself a concussion either way. She strikes the guy. The guy basically has a basal vagal and he's going back. She looks at his knee. First thing she realizes, she goes, oh, I can ride his knee to the ground. And she stops on his knee and she flamingos his, his knee at that point. He's on the ground. The guns, you know, uh, he, he, he had a gun um, that kind of like fell off to the side and stuff, but it was no... Uh, some other civilian came by and got it and he's screaming, you know, he's screaming on his uh, leg. He starts screaming because he sees security coming. He starts screaming, she attacked me. She attacked me. <laughs> and, her, and her thought process was, she goes, well, actually he's not lying. You know, it was interesting when the cops got there, they were shocked that she didn't use her gun. And she said, well, now there's a woman who's been assaulted before in, in and she said, I was able to see that he was no longer a threat. So I didn't have to do that. And that's, a, that's what this type of training, the feedback loop of trauma, and when you understand how to do it, you also, you're not going to violate your moral code, you know, um, intentionally, meaning had this guy hit his head or something and, and, you know, died or something, she still would have been far justified when it's going. Because they saw his van, he had the van going, his typical creeper van, it was going, it had all the secondary area supplies that, that he was having, he was just going to take her and throw her away. Somebody they had been looking for for about three years, and they got this guy. But here's this woman who literally was freezing during training, but when it happened, she had clear, concise information, and she had a plan. She knew she could do something, and she did it. And uh, it, it, was, it was great. I, I was really sad to hear it happen to her, but I was very happy that she was able to use it. And she was so mad at herself because she thought, she goes, you know, just because I have a dog, and I'm going, and she goes, I thought I was safe, and I had my gun, I, I, there was no reason for me. I knew there was nobody there and uh, I should have waited. I should have waited to uh, either have somebody walk me out or do something just because, you know, they're not going to, the predators are always looking for the easy target. And if you just make sure you're not an easy target, that's, that's more than half the battle. Mm -hmm. Do you find that there are people that have um, like, what type of objections do people have to this? So for example, like right now, I would imagine that some people were thinking, well, I'm not strong enough to put enough of a, I can hear my mom in my head saying something. Well, I can't do something like that. I'm just an old lady. 
But the amount of force that it takes, if properly put, is not more than what I, I think there might be a misnomer that you have to be, you know, in great physical shape or whatever. But just to continue to reiterate, this isn't that if you just have the information, uh, a smaller framed person can put it uh, just a little bit of force behind your elbow is enough force to put the dimmer switch on. Like you said, what are some of the other um, objections that somebody might have or, or, or some of the things that they may not realize it's putting you on the spot a little bit. But do you have any other? No, no. Oftentimes what they, what they do, they're always looking at things from a, a dual standpoint, one-on-one type of a situation. They're not really thinking about real violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, from a reaction standpoint, I talk to people all the time. Well, hey, how many people have been walking along and then a, a bee or a fly hits you in the eye? Like, yeah. And I go, yeah, you can just stand there like this, right? Stoic, no problem. I'm like, no, you do a dramatic, oh my God, you know, grabbing your eye and go away. That's a little fly hitting you barely in the eye. And that that's how dramatic your reaction is for something like that. Imagine you, you know, whatever your mom's weight is, with all of your force, you know, going into the eye there or going into, say, the throat or something. Even when you've been lightly tapped on the throat, people are coughing and sputtering and shock, you know. Anybody, if you weigh, if you're a normal adult that's within the ranges of, you know, 90 to, you know, infinity or whatever, you have the ability to injure the human body. Yeah. And that's just it. We're not susceptible. None of us are, are, are immune to these areas. Um, and that's the hard thing for people to understand. And I guess the thing that really sunk that in for me was years ago when I was at, you know, doing prison systems, talking about corrections officers. And they had done this really interesting little study. Somebody came in from one of the universities and showed these guys acts of violence, but also self-defense videos. And what was interesting was these guys never saw themselves on the losing side of violence when they would watch it. So what I mean by that, usually I do this thing you may have seen, I may have done it for you guys. I do it a couple of different ways, but one of the ways I do it is I'll show one person choking another person. And then I'll go to the crowd that I have there. You know, I've done this on like on my TED talk. And I go to the crowd. I said, okay, what would you do if you found yourself in this position? And everybody basically starts saying, okay, well, he's choking me. So I, I think I could kick him in, in the groin. Or I'm pretty sure I could hit the arms off and get him to stop choking me. Or, you know, maybe I could, you know, uh, you know, punch them to the throat. If I can, you know, if I get my arms long enough, they'll all look at it from that. And I'll say, Hey, great, great, great. And then I'll tell everybody, go, would you like to see what I do? And they go, yeah. So I will replace the guy that's choking the person. I'll continue to choke the person. I'll then put three to four more injuries on them, taking them to non-functional and people look at me shocked and they go, well, no, 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 you didn't say that. You said, what would we do if we found ourselves in that position? I said, yes, in that position. You chose to take the position of the victim because mm-hmm. you could never see yourself ever being justified choking. What if the story you told yourself was, I just finished the first threat. I turned around. I realized there was a second guy. The only thing I could think of was I just double choked him. And that was my starting point. Mm-hmm. And the most powerful thing I could probably leave your, your listeners with is that what I would challenge them to do is to do the uncomfortable act of watching acts of violence. If you see it on the media, the news, whatever, take the audio off of it, look at the act itself, and then just ask yourself, 
when does it change in somebody's favor? And what I mean by that is whoever ends up being the winner in the exchange, ask yourself where the systemic change happened in the body. All the time, it's an injury. And if somebody got an injury first and then they continue to put injury on the human body, and that's where the good information is for you. Meaning you're not condoning the criminal act you're seeing if it's criminal. You're not saying it's okay. What you're trying to do is protect your brain on how you look at the tool of violence. And you only want to identify with the winning side of violence, you know, and this goes into other visualizations, you know, when they type, teach like a, a golfer, you know, to visualize, you know, a top, one of the top golfers, you know, a guy like, you know, Tiger Woods or, or anybody like that. If they're going to imagine a certain hole, they're going to imagine they're at the tee, tee to fairway, fairway to green, and a one to two putt, depending on what the, um, the scenario is, you know, what they're in there. They're not going to imagine tee to rough, rough to the beach, four strokes in the beach, and a three putter on that. You know, you visualize what you want the outcome to be, and you need to start chaining your body to be understanding where to look for the good information in violence and what's useful to you, what works. What's interesting is these alpha predators they showed it to in prisons, they'd look at an act and they'd say, okay, yeah, that was, that was okay, but I would have done this. Meaning they'll look at it and then they'll prove upon, improve upon it. They never saw themselves fighting from the losing side and trying to you know, reconstruct things from the victim's standpoint. When you're looking at an act of violence, there's no good information from the victim's side you know, for us to protect our brains. And that is really a challenge for people. But once they understand it, once they understand, hey, I'm not condoning this, but I'm learning. I'm seeing what's useful to me here. That's when things really start to change for people. 100%. Yeah, that psychological shift is, is massive, is massive. Um, you know, I, I can't think of a better person and, and to, you know, explain this, to put all this together, to put, you know, the heart that you put into this. Um, trained as an elite warrior, probably in the top, you know, fraction of a percent on the planet to be able to to protect himself and and uh, put injury on somebody else. Completely taken all the way out, exposed to your ultimate vulnerability, and realizing and having that mental shift of like, whoa, even even at your level, you can be completely exposed um, for the the you know, for physics, basically taking over your body. Um, so I can't think of a better person to teach this kind of stuff. You really do bring a lot of presence of mind and thought and care around this stuff for someone that really takes um, the chance to look at it. So I appreciate that. And, um, you know, like I said, this is information that I want to share with my daughter, my son, ultimately, although I will say this, um, you mentioned something in the training that I went through uh, about what level or what what's age appropriate for both men and women? Can you speak to that real quick for for those yeah. that are hearing this? Yeah, the unfortunate thing when it comes to women is I usually train girls as young as eleven. I train my niece at eleven. Um, I will train my daughters are five now, and they will definitely get it probably right around nine ten. And the reason being is twofold. One, women have just increasing the the sexual assault and physical assaults against women is just outrageous you know it absolutely is there's just a high likelihood of that secondarily women tend to be far more mature about the subject matter meaning they have no interest in trying it out um because they're not violence isn't something that they communicate with for the most part whereas males especially you know young males 
oftentimes we communicate with violence. We'll knock each other around. We'll do locker room type stuff. And so we have this confusion with violence. It's like, okay, is this social violence? Is this kind of hierarchical stuff, joking around violence? Or is this the real thing? And oftentimes, you know, young males can't distinguish and they can do something. I tell people all the time, I will train your son if he's under 18. Um, but you have to, you have to tell me that this, he, that he's emotionally mature enough to understand this because you need to be prepared that if he uses this, you know, in an antisocial way, in an anti, you know, social aggression way, in a locker room situation or something like that, he has a chance to do irreparable harm to the other kid. And I made the decision and a lot of my instructors did the same thing. I didn't want my son navigating his high school, my oldest son, my oldest son now is 23. And I didn't want him navigating high school with that information. And people would, you know, that's crazy. No, I, if you really understand violence, it's, it, it's just a decision making. If you really understand boys uh, as they're growing up and young men, you, you understand you want a maturity level when it comes to this type of stuff. Um, yeah. You know, I would say, I, you know, and, and I'm, I'm definitely not anti-martial arts. If your kids, if you get them into a, a great martial arts program and it really comes up, people say, well, what martial art? It's not so much the martial art, it's far more the instructor. If you have an instructor that understands how to train kids correctly, there's lots of benefits to it. Just don't think it's self-defense, okay? So I don't train my kids. When my kids do jujitsu, they're doing it because I, you know, it's fantastic. It's, it's great to learn. It, it, is, a, it is a good uh, protection against schoolyard bullies and things of that nature. I have no illusions that it's gonna work against a predator um, at any of their training. And it's not the jujitsu, it's the age. People have to understand, you know, especially if you have small kids, you know, they've done numerous studies that you've probably seen one of the TV studies where they do, where they teach kids self-defense, no stranger danger, all that other stuff. Then they simulate something, say in a park where a, a simulated predator comes up and says, Hey, will you help me with my puppy? It's not feeling good. Can you help me you know, take it to my car or something? And they throw the kid right in the car. And these kids that have just been trained are there. Why the predator's mind is far more developed and far more psychologically devious than these kids can handle. And so it's our job as parents, not to be helicopter parents, but to realize that we can't expect them to fight off physically um, a much stronger predator that, that's going to be out there. So it's our job. Now, what we can do in martial arts and combat sports, I've trained my kids in gymnastics first and foremost. And the reason I started them with gymnastics is all these years of me training people the people that get it the fastest are either former gymnasts or dancers. Their body movement is such that it's really good. My young son is doing fantastic in gymnastics right now. It'll set him up for anything that he wants to do in the future. Same thing with my daughter. So I, I would strongly advise everybody to have their kids train in gymnastics if it's available to them. Martial arts can happen, you know, really a little bit later. You know, you can start them doing martial arts, say, you know, around 10, or, or 11, you don't have to start them off super, super early. Um, you know, but you want them to be really comfortable with how their body moves. So that, that would be a good way to approach it. But I can't reiterate enough that the training is more for their mental development, their physical development, their ability to work with teams, you know, get motivated, um, achieve rank, do all the, night, the great things that martial arts and combat sports can do for kids. But I would, I would caution, parents don't think it's necessarily going to be something that will ward off predators. Makes sense. 
Um, the latest book, When Violence is the Answer by Tim Larkin. Um, you've got a couple other books. I highly recommend checking out that TED Talk that you mentioned. Um, where else can somebody go to get more information about what you teach? You know, what we have going right now is a really great, great deal. Is I have a free masterclass that I put up. It's at uh, surviveviolence.com. Um, if they go there, just give their email. You, you, we're not, it's, it's totally free. It's a free video class. And what I do is kind of, you know, subjects that we've talked about, I really go into depth. I want people to really understand, you know, these, these concepts and ideas that we have, and that will prepare them. And then if they want to continue and, and train with us, fantastic. But if at least it's an opportunity for me to introduce some of these subjects and see if this is something they were looking for. Well, so it's one thing to hear it um, in this conversation. It's another thing to see the videos and to see, oh, you know, this is what you're talking about. The methodology that you guys go through as well, the very slow, deliberate, train the brain in a slow way to see things in that sort of slow motion way is I think also that uh, another level of, of training and then obviously getting out and physically doing it. Um, so Tim, thanks again very much for your time today. It's been awesome. And uh, I highly recommend anyone who's listening to this, especially uh, women and uh, you know, uh, anybody else that feels that that might be in that, you know, put in that position of uh, needing to defend themselves when violence is the only answer uh, highly recommend checking out. So again, thank you, Tim, for your time today. Great. Thank you, man. Appreciate it.